0: Back in the fur shed for episode 53 of the Trapping Today podcast. I'm your host, Jeremiah Wood, trapper and rank amateur lure maker. It's kind of an inside joke. Maybe we'll get around to it. Maybe we won't. Um, But uh, you can find more about me at trappingtoday.com. And thank you so much for tuning in and being here. I appreciate it. Uh, Tell a friend, tell a fellow trapper about the podcast. Uh, Absolutely uh, love doing this every week. And I'm actually recording this one a little bit early because I'm getting ready to head out on the trap line first thing tomorrow morning. And I get a couple of pretty busy days of trapping ahead of me. So I don't want to get caught Sunday night trying to bust out a podcast and uh, being all played out and ready to fall asleep. So anyway, the Trapping Today podcast is brought to you by Kotz Brothers Lures, dot com. Check them out. Um, If you're looking for trapping supplies they got a whole wide selection of traps and snares and all kinds of different equipment. They got their full line of baits and lures. And if you are into coyote trapping, uh, Kellen Kotz has a new book and a new DVD, The Black Book of Coyote Trapping and DVD The Flat Set Fix, teach you a little bit more about making flat sets for coyotes. So if you wanna get away from just making all dirt hole sets, you want to learn a little bit more about flat sets, mix things up on your line, I think that's a, a great uh, opportunity to learn a little bit more. So check those guys out and uh, let them know I sent you. Also just another little plug, um, it is that holiday season. So, um, maybe you want to buy a copy of my book, Fur Profit, A Trapper's Guide to the Modern Fur Market. We're getting into the time of year where um, it's difficult enough right now to market fur with the, the way prices have been. And it's going to continue to be tough. Uh, we're going to have low fur prices. So, I think uh, it's, it would benefit all of us trappers to think about different options. And Fur Profit, is a book that, for one thing, if you don't really understand how the fur market works, uh, it's an excellent introduction to the fur market, the ins and outs, um, where you sell fur, different types of fur, uh, where the demand is, what drives the prices, and all that. Uh, and then there's sections of the book where you get a few ideas on, okay, I'm not gonna get a good price from the fur buyer, so what can I do? Uh, If I want to take matters in my own hands, I want to sell my fur on eBay, maybe, I want to uh, tan it, and uh, I want to tan fur and and sell it in some specialty market. Um, Just a a few different ideas there that you can consider, and it's only 12 bucks. I mean, it's not a huge book, it's uh, 56 pages long, but I mean, 12 bucks, free shipping. um, If you get it on trappingtoday.com, can't beat it. Uh, you can get it at Cots Brothers, you can get it at F and T for Harvesters Trading Post. You can get it from uh, John Chagnon at PCS Outdoors and a few other places you can get the book. So check it out and it would be a huge help. I really oh you can get it on Amazon too, Amazon Prime. So um, anyway, huge benefit to the podcast, Help. Help me keep the lights on here, and I think it will benefit you as well if you don't already have a copy. So I've gone a few episodes, quite a few episodes, I haven't even mentioned it, so I wanted to throw that in there. So support Cots Brothers, get a book. All right, and now let's get into the podcast. I get a bunch of different things I want to talk about, and I know I'm only gonna get to a few of them. Um, Maybe a little update on my trap line to start, because we've been doing a lot of that lately. Um, again, we are in a complete winter wonderland here. We got a foot and a half of snow. It's been bitter cold. We've been probably uh, ten days or t- probably two weeks that we haven't seen any temperature above f- uh, freezing. So it's been it's been like you know like January, and it's November 23rd as I record this. So it's been really crazy. Uh, it's been awesome for trapping. Um, for me, I, I'm just kind of rolling with it. You know, some years there's guys that are still coyote trapping up here this this time of year. And, and this year, everybody's pretty much packing it up and, and gone. And usually for me, you know, this time of year, I'm starting to wind down on on the martin and fisher trapping. But this year, I've just gotten so excited about um, about getting out there and had a lot of things that have happened this fall. You know, the beautiful thing about trapping is the more you do it and the more you get into it, the more addictive it becomes. It's just so, so much fun uh, if you make it fun, and and that's what I've been doing this year. So Jim Furman, I get that comment from you about uh, boy, it sounds awfully. You know, I was talking about how how cool it was that I get to run a trap line on snowmobile like those guys up in Alaska and Canada. And we'll talk about that a little more about about that type of trapping here later on in the episode. But uh, I was like, man, this is so cool to have this opportunity. I've never been able to do this on snowmobile, especially in November. Usually we don't have enough consistent snow and cold weather to do that during our season. Well, I've been running, you know, the last two checks have been on snowmobile. Pretty awesome. And uh, I'm getting ready to go out and do more. I mean, I'm just, I'm I'm going after it and uh, I need I have uh I have 40 sets out and I've been uh I have not been moving sets around like I probably should be. The snow is part of the reason for that. Uh but I got a bunch of area of line that I really need to get out to and I scouted it out yesterday or not yesterday. When was that? Wednesday. And actually I didn't realize how much a line I actually have. So I'm I'm like where I'm set up, I'm thir- about 30 miles on dirt road from the pavement, and then when I get out there, when you go off on all the side branch roads and stuff, I did, uh, I looked at the odometer of the snowmobile when I left the truck, and when I got back, and it it was somewhere between 50 and 60 miles that I'd done. And so, I mean, that's, that's quite a bit of travel for for this area, we're we're not really running huge huge lines and um, talking like 40 to 60 sets and 50 to 60 miles. So it's it's a uh, it's quite a quite a wide area. And I last year I spread sets out um, quite a ways uh, distance wise, and I probably had 60 traps over 60 miles. And this year I kind of concentrated on. I was a little tighter in where I put my sets, and I only got over about... Right now, I've only gotten over about half of that area that that I would like to run. So, anyway, um, what I'm kind of moving towards is... uh, I don't know if you call it carpet bombing, but I'm trying to set a few more sets in smaller areas and then pull out and just see what happens. And it's kind of weird that... the. So, I ran the line... Are in the 40 sets on Wednesday, and I picked up uh, three Martin and two weasels, which you know wasn't. I mean, it's not spectacular, but man, I'm not going to complain. And they were all in areas that I had not caught anything. I've had set up for a couple weeks now, and I haven't hadn't caught anything at all. And some of the areas were places where I hadn't I'd never caught a martin or a fisher um all of last year either. So it's kinda interesting. They're just popping up in random places. But I still haven't hit that spot where there's a real like a lot of the Martin I'm catching, you can tell they're smaller in size and a lot of them are probably dispersing juveniles. So I'm I'm probably not in you know, I'm probably on the edge of some home ranges or something. I I don't know, for whatever reason I'm not in the past I've done this and other trappers currently do this where they'll put out a new line and they'll have five or six traps and they'll catch like three or four martin in those five six traps and then of course if you're wise you pull right out of that area and move on to the next area because you probably over may have overdone it a little bit depending on what your martin densities are in that area um as far as over harvesting but but anyway I've you know, the last two seasons I have not hit an area like that. So um, I'm, I'm trying to move in and expand into different parts of my line and try different areas and see if I can find those percentages in a few spots. So I scouted out an area, and this is the beauty of this snowmobile trap line because there are places the entire season that you just cannot get a pickup truck into. And Jim, going back to Jim's comment, he said, "Ah, Yeah, it would be awfully nice to be able to trap out of a heated cab of a pickup truck. (laughs) And he's in Alaska trapping probably from a snowmobile in 40 below uh, degree temperature. So I get it. (laughs) It's kind of a novelty for us because we don't get to do it very often. But I, I don't know. I'm kind of romantic that way. I just kind of always dreamed about being able to do that. And now I'm doing it. So as crazy as it is... Uh, there are some some advantages. Um, number one, when you're in the heated cab of the pickup truck, we also have, you know, depending on where you're at, there could be two or three other trappers in the heated cabs of their pickup trucks sitting right next to you. And, and it's kind of a, a toss of the coin sometimes whether or not you're gonna have someone on your line. So there's that to deal with. And then the pickup truck can't go any, everywhere. And there's one particular road system it's an area that I've spent a lot of time fishing in the past and I, I've kind of, I scouted it out for trapping and there's always this wet mud hole that I could never get a truck through and I was always worried about getting stuck so I never even touch it. And I knew there, looking on the aerial photos, that there was a road system uh, out beyond that wet hole. You know, there was probably four or five miles of road, five, six miles of road. Uh, beyond there and they that all dead end it dead ends into just this like deep thick vast area of forest that really has not been harvested uh to the extent that timber has been harvested on the rest of my line so that was like it always kind of fascinated me but I was always like yeah you know I I just can't get there so I'll move on to a different area well I got a snowmobile now and I can get there and so last we on wednesday when i went and checked all my traps i got done checking and i started scouting out areas and i was going back and looking at my old boxes from last year because i'm gonna reset them tomorrow and i was uh checking them to see which ones were chewed up and which ones i could use and i get to that mud hole and i went past it and of course you know foot and a half two feet of snow just skiff right over the top everything's frozen and i went down this road system and um I was just, man, I was just, I was in dreamland, like the Martin that I'm going to catch here. And I don't know, I could completely strike out, but I, my thoughts right now are I'm going to carpet bomb this area. I'm going to put like, uh, I don't know, 12 or 14 sets and like four miles of road. Because you get off in this area and there's, there's it branches into two roads and one dead ends at this large brook that's on, that flows into this big river. And so so you're already kind of dealing with uh, two water bodies that you know they, Martin and Fisher yes they'll cross them but it's kind of a pain in the butt and they get a swim across so you' you've kind of got a boundary there and then you've got an area that just has not been there there's thick heavy timber in there and it just I don't know the places up here in northern Maine that that I've caught the the most Martin always seem to be those areas that are just extremely remote and just as deep in the woods as you can get and i've tried to boil it down to whether what how you measure that in terms of habitat and harvest level and the type of trees and the age of the stand and i i don't know i i mean i've got theories and ideas but uh, one number that keeps sticking out coming out to me is there was a study a while back, and someone cited it recently in a paper that I read, that martin, for ideal martin habitat, now you can have uh, suboptimal martin habitat, you can have you know so-so, okay, martin habitat. But ideal martin habitat requires, um, it's a, a certain area of undisturbed, unharvested forest contiguous forest of mature state so not something that you know has been partially harvested and cut and has a bunch of open skid trails and open areas or clear cuts uh mature forest patches of i believe it was 640 acres it was somewhere around around the that number around 600 acres of of mature forest uh, that patch size is where you get into real optimal martin habitat. And I get back home and I start looking. Well, actually, I was on my Onyx maps uh, on my phone for a while there. I got to the end of that road. And I downloaded all the aerial images through through the Onyx Hunt app. And I pulled that up and I looked and it was like, it was all like untouched timber. So, the, and it was, I don't know what the area was. I Actually, there's a tool on that app that you can you can measure it. But it was, I don't know, it was like, 15 degrees and the wind was blowing and I was on the snowmobile for 50 miles and I was kind of ready to go back home but um, I looked at it and I just it was like wow so like they opened up this road in this area and they cut on one side they cut it just a little bit and the rest of it is untouched and no one's been in there trapping I I know for a fact no one's been there trapping for at least 5 years maybe 10 years I don't know whenever that mud hole came to be And so there's no trapper harvest, and there's deep woods, and it's contiguous forest, and it's on the edge of this large stream. Uh, I'm pretty excited about it, pretty excited. So anyway, uh, tomorrow, I actually been in the fur shed the last uh, two days working on making new boxes, lynx exclusion devices, to trap Martin and Fisher. Um, they're all wood and the, the ends are wire, so they're open and, there's, and they're all the 120, the smile, smaller 120 style devices. I made, I don't know how many, I made 20, 25 of them, something like that, but uh, <clears throat> today, I, 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 yesterday I cleaned out the fur shed of all those boxes. Actually, I can walk around freely in the fur shed, but I can't walk in my socks. Um, so that's the goal here in the next week or two. I want this cleaned up to where I can walk around in my socks and it doesn't stink so bad. I, I'm going to have to paint the floor to cover up some of the odor. Um, but anyway, I've, so I've got the, I, I had to put, the challenge with these Lynx exclusion devices is they're so bulky and huge. And I when I throw the sled on the back of the pickup truck on the Ford Ranger, I get a snowmobile and that's about all I can fit and a few other items. I can't put boxes there. So what I had to do is I had to fix up my snowmobile trailer and I loaded the snowmobile on that hooked onto my truck and then the bed of my Ford Ranger is full of Lynx exclusion devices. And then I got I already put the bait inside of them so I didn't have to find a place to put the bait. And I've got a few tools and stuff and then the rest of it's in the cab of the truck. So it's gonna be quite a quite a trip. I think what I'm going to do is I'll drive out there in the woods, park the truck, unload the snowmobile, and underneath all those Lynx exclusion devices, I have an old-style dog sled, like the with the metal skis, and uh, I don't know exactly what they're called, but it's it's similar and designed to a dog sled. We, we use them here for ice fishing. Uh, uh, tag sled, I don't know what you want to call it, but it's it's metal frame with a little bit of wood on it. And it folds down. You can fold it back up. And it's got a big tall back on it with two little sides. And you can put a bunch of stuff in it. So I got that folded down underneath those boxes. And I'm going to pull that out. And I'm going to load it up. I think I can put 10 or 12 Lynx Exclusion devices on that. If I strap them down good. Hook onto the snowmobile and just go. And I'm going to go out to that area that... that uh, Area in the line that's really remote and past that mud hole, and I'm gonna I'm gonna set out whatever I can get set. And I'm going to when I get back, I'm probably gonna have to take a trip back to the truck, get more boxes, and then go off to a couple of other road systems that I've I've identified as places I want to set up, and try to do that, and then uh i'm i'm going to restrain myself as much as possible from checking traps uh until i set as many as i can do and then I, whatever daylight i have left i'm going to go check traps and i'll probably have to come back on go back there on sunday and check the rest of my traps I'll probably just check the whole line again on sunday so you, you know even in that remote area i may just get so excited that i'll spend the extra time and money to to get out there even on one day just to see if anything came to my sets. So it's exciting. Um, I don't know. You kind of, I guess you can go a couple ways with it. You can just say, "Ah, this sucks. It's too much work. It's cold. It's a lot of, it's hard, and it takes time and patience. Or you can just say, man, this is pretty awesome. This is a challenge, and I really am excited about it. So that's kind of where I'm going with it, and, and I love it. I'm really enjoying it. So, um, I'm going to take a quick break, and then we'll move on to the next part of the show. All right, so if you hear a little bit of crackling in the background, I just put a couple more pieces of wood in the stove in the fur shed. So, that's the background noise. Uh, Just a couple of quick things that I'm going to get into that I won't have time to do tonight, but um, the fur market forecast, fur market updates, uh, I'm going to talk about that a little bit. Uh, Basically, just in a nutshell, nothing's changed in the fur market and it's going to be, we're not going to see the the major fur auctions are are all being kind of postponed. Uh, The early auctions are done and the earliest auction we're going to see is in March. So we're essentially, other than like local fur buyers, uh, we're not going to see any real uh, fur market activity until at least next March. So, uh, I never felt a huge rush to do a fur market forecast for trapping today this year. I'll probably put one up at some point when I get the chance, but it's really just kind of a dead time in the fur market. Uh, a couple other things. I'm reading a book called Labrador by Choice. It's a really cool book about this guy, Benjamin Powell, who was a trapper in uh, in Labrador. And he was from like Newfoundland and really, really interesting book. I'm only partway through it, but I'm going to review that in a future episode. Uh, trip, pan systems, I, I have some pit pan systems I just bought that I'm going to put on some of my beaver traps, so I'm going to go through that a little bit. Um, <clears throat> all kinds of cool things to get into, but right now I wanted to talk about Hunters of the Northern Forest for the rest of tonight's episode, and this is a book, uh subtitle is Designs for Survival Among the Alaskan Kuchin by Richard K. Nelson. And I first stumbled across this book when I was in college at the University of Maine in Orono. And I was in the UMaine Fogler Library uh, where we had to go to research a bunch of stuff. And it is huge, huge, huge building and all tons and tons of books. And somehow I got into this area and I was just kind of interested, I was always interested in reading anyway and i was looking at uh trapping hunting and trapping and and uh i got into the section where I, I started to find books about trapping in the arctic in alaska and and all that stuff and and i stumbled across this book so it looked really neat and i i uh took it out on loan and i read it and i was just fascinated by it so uh Several years went by, and I hadn't really thought much about it. And uh, recently something... uh Oh, Steve Nella, the uh, Meat Eater podcast, was talking about it. He mentioned Richard K. Nelson in some episode. They were talking uh, about some subsistence stuff. And it reminded me, I was like, hang on a second, I remember that name. And I remember... Um, the book that I read, I, I had to see if I can find that. So I looked it up on Amazon, and sure enough, there it was. So I bought a copy, and, and I started to reread it. Uh, really fascinating stuff. So Nelson, uh, he's still around. He's he's in his 70s, late 70s. He's a was an anthropologist. And this book was written in 1973. What he did was he would go into these villages and... Uh, talk like he'd live with these people, and he did it. The Hunters of the Northern Ice was was one of his books. Uh, he did some stuff in the Aleutian Islands, uh, Kodiak Island, Arctic Slope. So he'd go and like live with people and just document how they lived and how they survived and in different methods and things that they used. So he kind of c- captured uh, Hunters of the Northern Forest. Uh, he, he captured this community in this kind of transition time w- between, like, traditional native subsistence living and sort of modern, like, snowmobiles and grocery stores and, and that sort of thing. Uh, <clears throat> and, and he captured it at a unique time. It was written in 1973. So there was, you know, there was, you're not talking any internet or anything, uh, society had kinda just started to work its way into this civilization. So, Nelson went into um, an area uh, along the Porcupine and Black Rivers. There's a village called Chakyetsik, Alaska. It's, I believe it's, and and, uh, Jim or anybody else, uh, correct me if I'm wrong because uh, I've never been here. I only dream about it, but it's east of Fort Yukon. Fort Yukon's on the Yukon River, where uh, the Porcupine River joins the Yukon. This is like uh, Interior Alaska, not far from uh, the Canadian border, um, not f- too far from Eagle and that that area uh, on the border there. So, so Chuk-Yitzik is this little village. I think it. I think there's still like 100 people that live there. I think I believe it's still occupied. And it's kind of one of those uh, remote native villages. So so Nelson lived there, and, and he documented their life. And, and so he talks about uh, the study. He talks about the area in this book. Uh, vegetation and its uses. So he goes into the trees. Summer travel, logistics of hunting, canoes, boats, river, river travel, camping, He goes into fish, birds, moose, bears, small game. And then the important part, part three of the book, trapping. So the trapping section, he talks about uh, and gives an introduction, goes into the trappers, uh, winter travel, logistics of trapping, and then he goes into all the different species that are trapped, Uh, mink, marten, lynx, uh, beaver, and other fur species, muskrat, wolverine. And, uh, and then finally, talks about problems and adaptation, history, environment, settlement, uh, acculturative patterns and exploitative skills, adaptive skills, and so on. But part three, trapping, is what I'm interested in. And, and that was, to me, the most fascinating part about this book. And I thought maybe I'd read a little bit of it to you. So I hope Mr. Nelson doesn't mind. The book uh, has not been in print f- forever. <laughs> probably since ni- 1973 edition was published, so I don't think I'm costing any money by not uh, uh, by people not buying the book by listening to it here. Um, if you want to buy the book, uh, Hunters of the Northern Forest, you could probably still find it on Amazon. I think I might have paid like 20 bucks for it. Um, well, well worth it if you're into this type of thing. And if I remember, I will add a link an Amazon link to the show notes of this podcast, so you can just click on it and see where you can get the book. So, Part 3, Trapping. Chapter 10, The Trappers. And and I'm going to go ahead and read uh, this section, um, Chapter 10, to you. Fur brought the white man into the Kuchin country. Fur kept him there, and Fur has been the nexus between the Indian, and the world outside for most of the past 120 years. When Alexander Murray established Fort Yukon for the Hudson's Bay Company in 1847, his sole motivation was to initiate trade for valuable furs. And so it began that the white man came to the north not to steal land, not to wage war, but to do business. Since the Indians lived on land that was never to prove attractive to large numbers of whites, the relationship between these two people remained largely mercantile until very recent times. Murray was quick to notice that the country surrounding Fort Yukon supported extraordinary numbers of fur-bearing animals. At one point, he refers to its superabundance of beaver and martens. This is from Murray 1910, page 54. But there were also lynx, mink, muskrat, wolf, fox, and wolverine in equally notable quantities, as we'll see shortly. The Kuchin have always taken some fur animals using their highly effective deadfalls and snares, but for the most part, these animals were peripheral to the native economy. Now the white man wanted fur and would pay handsomely for it with highly desired trade goods. That was enough for the Kuchin, who began to devote more and more effort to catching fur bears. It's hard to say when trapping became a dominant force in their lives, but by the turn of the century, they were probably modifying their entire lifestyle to fit into a trapping regime. During the early period of fur trade, the people lived most of the year in family groups, scattered across the land, wherever there were food resources to exploit. Some energy was devoted to trapping, enough to get a few supplies, perhaps a rifle or ammunition. As time passed, the Kuchin became increasingly dependent on trade goods, which necessitated an ever-greater trapping effort. Steel traps began to replace snares and deadfalls for catching furs as rifles displaced bows, spears, and snares for big game. Finally, I cannot say when, the people began to establish permanent one- or two-family settlements along the river, dividing the country into individual trapping territories. Perhaps white men had something to do with the territorial idea, by the early 20th century, a fair number of white men had come into the region, perhaps an overflow from the gold rush, and they began to trap. The Indians welcomed them, usually becoming relatives by marriage rather quickly, and a process of mutual assimilation began to take place. The white men learned native outdoor skills and reciprocated by introducing a whole constellation of ideas, techniques, and values. So Kuchin and white men lived as neighbors, sharing the same life ways or depending on each other in a trapper-trader relationship. Trapping dominated the Kuchin country for the entire first half of the 20th century. The routine of life centered upon winters spent in small family groups out on the scattered trap lines and summers of trading and fishing at large encampments and centers like Fort Yukon or Rampart House. Dependence on goods from the outside steadily increased, and the trapping economy enjoyed a great fluorescence. Meanwhile, however, a new era of change loomed ahead. In the decade following World War II, a number of things happened that began attracting the Black River people to larger settlements and away from the scattered, lonely, trapline cabins. The value of furs declined, summer jobs and welfare money became available, and schools were built for the children the old trapping life, which had become as much the pattern of Kuchin culture as nomadic hunting and fishing existence which preceded it, began to disappear. This process is still going on today, remember this was back in 1973, when the people live in villages from which trappers make brief excursions to the trap line. Trapping skills, which grew up during timeless aboriginal past and were changed and elaborated after white men arrived, are still perpetuated by the old timers and adults. But trapping as a way of life, as the way of life, has practically disappeared since villages, jobs, and schools came into the Black River country. The next few chapters will, I hope, give an idea not only of what trapping is, but of what it means to the people as a mode of existence. The fur trade had an immense impact on the Kuchin, in far more ways than I can hope to understand or discuss here. Perhaps most important, the vigorous fur economy which existed here over this, over a century of growing contact with the outside was an essential determinant of the peaceful intermingling of European and Kuchin culture. The white man came here and stayed for the sole purpose of conducting business with people whose claim to the land was never seriously challenged. The Indians welcomed these newcomers even to the point of allowing them to establish their own trap lines and live as competitors on their land, feeling that they had much to gain by their presence. So a pleasant symbiosis was established, a dramatic contrast to the violent collision of Indian and white men that occurred almost everywhere else in North America. The chapters that follow survey the long and evolved subject of trapping, first with a discussion of modern trappers and their seasonal activities, skills, and productivity. Then comes a detailed consideration of the logistics of trapping, the complex of activities related to winter travel. This information will lay the groundwork for understanding the discussions of trapping techniques which follow. Chapters 12 to 17 deal with the methods used by the transient Kuchin for trapping fur animals. The major species are dealt with in separate chapters, and several minor ones are lumped together in a single chapter. But although each species is given a separate discussion, it will become apparent that the same trapping methods apply generally to most kinds of fur animals. Thus there are a number of basic principles a trapper follows in making his sets with variations to adjust to the size and behavioral peculiarities of each species. The construction of trap or snare and snare sets is not elaborate or complex and may be learned without a great deal of training. This does not mean the trapper's art is a simple one however because there is more to catching fur animals than merely setting traps and snares. The Indian must be intimately familiar with the habitat, movements, general behavior, and indicators of the game he's after. Trapping, like hunting or any other vocation, requires a lifetime of accumulating knowledge and experience to develop true mastery. Although a man is able to learn the basic principles of trapping in a year or so, it takes much longer before he becomes an expert. The Trappers. Modern Trapping Activity. Despite a gradual Diminution in the importance of trapping over the past 20 years, it remains a major economic activity of the transient Kuchin. They still consider winter and early spring the trapping season, and they refer to themselves first and foremost as trappers. Fur is a main source of income for a fair number of Chakyatsek men. But at the same time, virtually all of the Kuchin explicitly state that they would rather earn a living by wage employment than by trapping. And with easy access to jobs and welfare, many now devote only a limited effort to obtaining fur. Those who, cannot, who can get enough money by other means trap only to earn supplemental income, varying their activity according to need. So just a little commentary here. It just seems crazy to me that uh, people, it, it's just like anything else, I guess. Um, when you do something as a necessity to make money, you 're not necessarily drawn to it um, I can understand how eh, if if you can get a better job elsewhere screw it I'm gonna go um, I don't need to trap why would I want to trap trappings just eh, whatever F- but for us you know as trappers as people who have to trap is like man you guys are crazy you could actually you know all the freedom and the, the wilderness and being able to to catch fur every day on the trap line I mean, why would you give that up? Um, so it's kind of interesting. It, it, I wonder if there's some parallels to back in the fur boom days when a lot of people trapped just for money uh, throughout the United States. And, you know, fox trappers back then that were getting $60, $70 a fox, and they just they were just in it for the business aspect of it. And when the fur market crashed, they left, and they went on to other things and made money other ways. And the guys who just truly loved trapping just because they, they had to trap and it was part of their DNA and they loved it, they kept trapping. During the summer of 1969, almost all the men in Chucky were steadily employed fighting forest fires. Their earnings were great enough, $1,000 to $3,000 per man, plus equal amounts for older boys, so that many took little interest in trapping during the following winter. This was true despite an abundance of fur animals and the consequent success of those who trapped. Out of 25 potential trappers, only 6 devoted a major effort to trapping activity. These men had long trap lines far from the village, ran them regularly throughout the winter, and earned good incomes from their work. Another 4 men carried out limited activity, either trapping close to the village or spending only part of the season in these pursuits. Nine more did very limited trapping, going out on the line only a few times during the season, often just to help another man temporarily. And six men who could have, could have gone out did no trapping at all. Attenuated trapping activity and a concomitant decrease in the size and complexity of trap lines show a clear trend away from a fur-based economy. It's also worth noting that all of today's trappers are adults and very few men under 25 or 30 years of age show any interest at all in bush life. In this fact alone, prospects for the future are clear. <laughs> so that was interesting. You know, here it is 2018, and we are still battling uh, that and talking about how the trappers are aging, and uh, and we're not getting any young people into, the, into uh, trapping. Um, I think... Uh, I don't know, there's there's a lot of ways to approach that and think about it, but we, we still are getting a lot of young people into trapping, it's just not maybe not quite what it was. Alright, let's move on. The The next section is the partnership, and this is always interesting, I'm actually going to talk a little bit in future episodes about partnering up with a guy doing some beaver trapping here um, in January, and uh, there, there are... When you consider partnering up on a trap line, there are a lot of things to think about and consider, a lot of positive and negative aspects to that. So it's kind of interesting they talk here about uh, how, how partnerships work out on trap lines. Although partners, partner relationships are an institution of long standing among the transient Kuchin, they are perhaps more common today than ever before. Virtually all trappers who stay out on the line overnight or travel fairly long distances by snowmobile have partners. The more localized trappers, on the other hand, often go out alone. The partnership arrangement is generally viewed as a matter of convenience for two men who can work well together who are approximately equal in their ambition and skill. But if anything characterizes the partnership, it is fragility. These arrangements seldom last more than a year or two, because the men cannot get along well enough for a longer period, or because for some reason, another partnership seems more convenient. Most often, partners seem to grow tired of each other. Then a few years later, they team up again for a year, and so on. In former times, when fathers and sons often trap together, partnerships could provide the means of instruction for apprentice trappers. Nowadays, partners go trapping together for several reasons. For one thing, they want companionship during long, idle nights of dark winter season. Partners also provide a measure of security, so if a man is injured or becomes sick, someone's there to take emergency measures. With snowmobiles, it's almost imperative that each man have a partner, because of the danger of a breakdown or an injury-producing accident. Partners share food, gear, and cabins, but, and this is important, their trap lines are kept separate. Thus, one man might bring in large catches and the other very small ones, but the take is not shared. Even if they set traps along the same trail, each man keeps his separate and gets only the animals that end up in his sets. One exception to this pattern is when a man is hired by another to go out and run his trap line. In this case, the two men divide the catch, usually on a 50-50 basis. And uh, what you don't see here here, uh, on the page of the book, there is a picture showing a couple says trapping partners taking lunch break on the trail. They sit on a bed of spruce boughs near the fire. Cardboard boxes contain their grub. The Season, Preparations and Equipment In earlier times, when trappers stayed out on the line throughout the winter, preparations for trapping began early in the fall. First, it was necessary to load families and their provisions into boats for the journey upriver to the main trapline cabins. This was usually done early enough, perhaps in July or early August, so that a good supply of fish could be caught and dried. At the same time, there were other preparations to be made for the long cold season ahead. Cabins had to be repaired, equipment such as toboggans built or ready for the trail, new clothing made, firewood cut, and the trails cleared of overgrowth. And there's another picture here shows a trapper's outfit including snowmobile and toboggan, tent, rifles, snowshoes, axe, traps, and snares. And then it shows like a snowmobile with a toboggan and a cache on the left. It's actually a really neat picture. It'd probably be worth buying the book just to be able to check out these pictures. they're really cool. Nowadays, this routine has changed drastically since trappers live year-round in the village. So remember, these people were living a nomadic lifestyle and they kind of migrated and and sort of gravitated towards living in a village and then just going out from the village to catch fur and do whatever, whatever else they need to do. Those who trap on the Black River try to visit their cabins during the fall to make minor repairs and see that things are in order. Some trappers carry equipment to their cabins by boat in the fall, but they usually go there only to fix up the cabins. If it snows early, a visit can be made by dog team or snowmobile to deliver equipment and supplies. Trappers need quite an assemblage of equipment in order to carry on their work and live comfortably in the bush. Some of their equipment is carried with them on the trail and some is stored in the line cabin. Of course, the modern trapper does not need a completely furnished cabin since his family stays in the village. The following list includes all the essential equipment and supplies used by modern trappers. Dog team or snowmobile? This was kind of interesting that um, nowadays there are very, as far as I can tell, there are very few trappers that up there that only use dog team to run their lines. Uh, the majority seem to use snowmobile. But back back then they were kind of, they are probably 50-50 um, at the time they were transitioning into modern technology, I guess. Toboggan or sled or both? dog harness lines and chains, tent, hunting canoe for spring muskrat hunting, winter clothing, heavy rifle, 22 rifle, and a shotgun, snowshoes, chainsaw or saw, canvas tarps, sleeping bag, camp stove, cooking utensils, lanterns, tool kit, axe, ice chisel, chisel and shovel, radio, traps and snares, hide stretchers, skinning, knives, and scrapers, wire, rope, trap baits and scents, ammunition, gasoline and kerosene, oil, dog food, food supplies. The most essential items a trapper owns are his traps and snares, which he usually refers to as his equipment. The Kuchins stress that if a man wants to catch lots of fur, he has to have plenty of equipment. In other words, the more traps a man sets, the better his catch will be. The best trappers in Chokietek today set out 150 to 200 traps, and perhaps 30 snares during the winter season, and they use 150 or more snares for beer during the spring. Man, that must have been nice. If you don't have a uh check law, you can set just about as many traps as you can get out. Um, of course, you know we we're limited to up here you know, like my trap line, for instance, I've got a five day check. So every five days I have to check all my traps. So I pretty much with a full-time job, I only get the opportunity to check traps one or two times a week. So I have to, I can only set the number of traps that I can check pretty much in a day. Because if I have to check two days out of every five, then I'm, um, I'm really pushing it. So um, that's pretty cool. That's, you know, talk about long line trapping, 150, 200 traps. Since the Indians take a variety of fur species, they must provide themselves with different kinds of equipment. It's important to keep traps and snares free of foreign scents. And so during the summer months, they are stored outside the house, away from the telltale odors of smoke, gasoline, dogs, and humans. Usually they are put in an outdoor cache, hung up on a wall to prevent their touching anything. One man said he put spruce, a spruce bough inside his trap sack to keep foreign scents away. Traps and snares may also be rubbed with spruce boughs or boiled with them to remove all scents. All right, in, uh, further on here we go into trapping season, trap lines. And we talk about um, the different lines and how they run, the cabins and shelters on the line, uh, trap and trapping productivity. But we're running out of time. I'm running out of breath. And I've got a big trap line to run in the morning. So I'm going to cut this episode short here. And uh, we will continue on in the next episode. I will read the rest of this section from Hunters of the Northern Forest. Thank you so much for tuning in. I appreciate having you guys listening every week. And until next time, keep on thinking trapping, talking trapping, and get out trapping if you can. I appreciate you and we'll see you next episode.